Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. And the word of the Lord reads, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and, and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> I certainly am grateful for many things, but one of the things I think that I'm most grateful for is the patience that God has granted me through this church family over the years. And what I mean by that is you have all been very patient with me um, because the truth is when I was installed as the, the, the pastor seven years ago, um, I was a very green preacher. It's not that I wasn't accustomed to, to, to public speaking. I could certainly do that. I was accustomed to that. Uh, but as a preacher, I was very green and very inexperienced. And frankly, at times, I didn't think, maybe I didn't know what I was doing. And you all were very patient with me and kind to me and, and allowed me to grow. And over the years, <clears throat> uh, God has grown me and he's put different people in my paths to influence me in the direction um, as a preacher. And as a result, I have fallen in love with what is called expository Preaching, which is a fancy word of saying um, preaching the word, staying in the word, and going where the word actually leads. Or, or in other words, letting, the, let, letting scripture speak for itself. You see, I've come to understand that the power of preaching is the word of God itself. It isn't how clever the preacher is. It is not how smooth um, the presentation is. It isn't how cool the illustrations are or how great, how great the, uh, the graphics and the technology is. The power is in faithfully proclaiming and expositing and explaining the, the words of the living God. And there have been many preachers that I have listened to over the years that have influenced me that way. In fact, about three years ago, if you have been paying attention, you would notice that my preaching style began to change. And, and as you know, this year or this last year, we began a verse-by-verse exposition of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, where we're, we're, we're taking our time through the word. And I have personally have profited from, from that study. And I love how expository preaching allows us to take a text and linger over it and then dig into the verses and into the words and discover the truths and the theology that God has given us as they come up in the text. And, and the truth is, there are at times um, more, there's more in the text than we can really get to in any given week, as we saw last week. Now, one of the, the pastors whose preaching has profoundly influenced me is, is a, a pastor and author, John Piper. And, and, and this is a man who can really just flat out preach. And, and he can exposit the word with incredible um, passion, but precision and skill as well. And I would certainly aspire to be more like him in many regards, except maybe one. John Piper, he can spend months on a single text. In fact, his church that he had pastored, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, he preached through the book of Romans, and it took him eight years to get through it. Eight years in the book of Romans. I love the book of Romans, but eight years. All right, now, I, I'm sure that they profited, the church profited from that teaching, but eight years. I've not even been preaching for eight years, right? slowly and meticulously going through the text and, and wringing out every bit of truth that you can for eight years. And I mention this because it is my aim, certainly, to preach through the Gospel of Mark and really examine all you know, what God has for us in the text, but I have no desire to take eight years to do it. All God's people said, Amen. Right, that's right. And, and because of that, I'm aware of the fact, right? I'm aware that, that there are going to be times in every text that we walk through that there's going to be something that, that's left unsaid, that there's going to be more to talk about than we can talk about, that there's going to be theological truths that we just don't get to in a given week, right? 
but I consciously have made a decision to spend one Sunday on a given section of text and then move on. And, and, and I cover as much as I can in a given week, right? And then we keep going, right? And, and, and no one in this room, I would say, would ever accuse me of being short on time, right? In fact, someone this week said to me, what I've learned about you, Pastor, is that um, when you say we're about to wrap things up, that means you've got 20 minutes left, right? <laughs> Just, I get it, all right? Well, if you've been paying attention, well, the text that we're in this morning is the same text that we covered last week. We've come back to the same text, and there is a reason for that. You see, last week we covered a lot of ground and you know how I know we covered a lot of ground is because guess what? I went long again, okay? And I would tell you that I would repent of that, but we both know that that's not going to be true, right? And, and so I do my best to communicate the, the, the biggest parts of the text, right, in the time that I have. And sometimes there's so much to say, I go long like I did last week. But what you have to know, right, what you really have to understand is that, is that I actually cut the message short, right? It might not feel like it, but I actually did. Because there's a whole other set of issues that I felt that we needed to talk about, and I realized that we were already going to be long, and I knew that there was not enough time to profitably address those issues. And so I took that and I cut it out thinking, we're just not going to get to it now. It'll just have to come back to it some other time. I, I planned to move on to verse 14 and talk about the beheading of John the Baptist, as happy as that might sound. But, but, but then, <laughs> I no more than finished second service and had somebody come up to me and say, hey, that was a great message. But you know what? You could have really touched on this other subject. And I was like, I know, right? I know. I was thinking that, but I, I didn't have time. And then within a few minutes, somebody else said, you know, that was a great message, right? But you could have talked about this one thing. And I was like, I know, right? I was thinking about it, but I just didn't have time, right? And I've already planned to move on. So it's time to get over it. But then as I began the week, I was thinking about, you know, that. And I felt like, you know, conviction because this subject that, we're, that, that we were talking about is, is really an important subject to, uh, to faith in our church. And, and I was rushing you know, past it simply because I wanted to stay on schedule and not take eight years to get through the book of Mark. And so I, I felt like the Holy Spirit was urging me to just you know, this one time slow down this week and revisit the same text and really address some additional truths that are important and uh, and, and, and so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the same text as we did before. And uh, if you'll remember last week, just a, by way of, uh, of a review, uh, was the fact that Jesus called his 12 disciples at that point in his ministry. He had spent time with them. He trained them. He equipped them spiritually to heal people and cast out demons. He equipped them provisionally, meaning he, he told them basically... I. I've given you everything you need. You don't have to take any extra resources with you on the road. And then he sent them out. And they went out two by two. And they preached the gospel. And they called people to repent. And they healed the sick. And they cast out demons just like Jesus called them to. All 12 of them did. And the thing that most Christians, when they read that, will overlook without thinking about it is that also includes Judas, have you ever paused for a minute to think about that? Judas, the son of perdition, the one who betrayed Jesus Christ to his death, the one who sold out the Messiah himself, he was called by Christ, trained by Christ. He was equipped by Christ and sent out to preach and heal and cast out demons by Christ, just like the other disciples. Because notice it doesn't say he sent them out except for Judas. It doesn't say that you know, he gave them authority over demons except for Judas. That they went out and preached to people that they should repent and, 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 and they cast out demons and anointed sick people and they got healed except for Judas, because he really didn't do those things. He was just out there just pretending. The Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't talk about that. He sent them all out, and they all did what they were called to do. Jesus called him, trained him, equipped him, and sent him out just like the rest of them. Why? Have you ever really thought about that question? Why would he do that? Why would he waste his time? 
Why would he train up and equip and send out Judas? Which really kind of leads to three important questions. Number one, was Judas even ever even saved? I mean, he was a follower. I mean, Jesus called him and trained him up, and he went. But was he ever saved? Number two, if he was not saved, then was Jesus fooled? Did somehow Jesus misjudge him? And number three, was God surprised by Judas's, you know, response? And that God had to then adapt and change his plan? That's the three questions that really come to my mind. And this morning we're going to go ahead and look at these questions and we're going to answer them. But then we're going to go and we're going to talk about what this means for you. Because this issue right here of Jesus calling Judas here has massive implications for us that we cannot avoid. Implications that we need to talk about. Implications of why would Jesus do this? And the answer is ultimately, before we jump in here, let me remind you, is the answers that we come up with our, with our big theological questions, and then these are theological questions, the answers that we typically come up with is rooted in our theological starting point. It's, so, it's where we start in our hearts and our minds, because we will either start in one of two places. We'll start with a man-centered theology, where we will try to answer the questions beginning with man's view of the world and the universe and of things. What makes sense to us as people? What is fair? according to our understanding of fairness. What is fair according to the way we see things? We will try to measure things and try to understand things based on who we are and how we see the world. Or will we, on the other hand, will we start with a God-centered theology where we keep in mind the big view of God and understand that God is bigger than our imaginations. The universe is 90, the observable universe is 96 light years Across, You can't even imagine a number that big, and God is outside of that. He is, by definition, bigger than your imaginations. And in light of that, do we try to answer these questions in light of who he is and his holiness and his righteousness? Because all things really find their meaning in God and not us. And so every question should be answered in light of who God is and what he has to say, regardless of how we might feel about it. And it's my aim this morning to come to these questions and answer them to the best of my ability as a fallen human being, to the best of my ability to answer them from a God-centered theology, because, because ultimately man-centered theology leads away from the truth and doesn't really give us the answers to these questions. So with that, the first question was Judas saved, and the answer is simply no. He was not saved. Judas did not go to heaven. Judas did not inherit the kingdom of God. Judas betrayed Christ to his death for 30 pieces of silver. A sin that he knew was egregious, a sin that he knew was wrong, and ultimately he died in his sin and he committed suicide. And I want, I want to make really clear, it was not suicide that condemned him. It was not suicide that condemned him. It was his unbelief that condemned him. Jesus said to repent and believe the gospel, and Jesus, by his actions, revealed that he did not repent of his betrayal towards Christ, or of his greed, or of his selfishness. And he obviously didn't believe in Christ or the gospel because he betrayed Christ to his death, and he never asked for forgiveness. Once he realized what he did, he didn't believe that there was any kind of hope. He did not understand or believe the gospel, and so he killed himself. So no, absolutely not, without question, unequivocally, he was not saved, which enforces us to ask the question, if he was not saved, but Jesus called him personally, trained him, and, and this, this man followed Jesus around and identified as a Christ follower, and Jesus equipped him and sent him out with the rest of the apostles, what happened? And we come face to face with really the only two possible options. The first option that some people will say is Judas lost his salvation. That he had it at one point, and then he, he lost it. He had possession of it, and then he, he lost it. 
that God had grace on Judas and that the seed of the, word, the gospel fell into his heart and Judas chose by his own free will to receive Christ. And then Judas, because of his decision, God changed his heart, regenerated him, and that seed grew up into his life. And Judas was then at that moment, when it first happened, was saved. And if he would have died in that moment, he would have gone to heaven because he chose God. But then because of sin, he wandered away from the faith by his own free will and gave up his salvation, and he lost heaven as a result. That one moment that he was saved, the next moment he was not saved. And this is something that really many people believe. This is classically known as the Arminian position. Arminianism is the theological framework that makes, that makes man ultimately responsible for salvation. That man, in spite of sin, has the ability to choose God. And on his own, in, in spite of God's sovereignty, has the ability to unsave himself. Which means, ultimately, that there is no assurance of salvation. Because I can be saved today, but who knows what my actions are going to be tomorrow. I can be unsaved tomorrow. Which means salvation, ultimately, is by my actions. I can never really even know if I'm saved because I never really can rest in my salvation because I know who I am. Like, I'm going to have to be constantly worried. Am I in sin today or am I not in sin today? Am I in sin 20 minutes from now or am I not in sin 20 minutes from now? And many people believe that born-again Christians who have been saved can and do lose their salvation. And they believe that this is what happened to Judas. They believe that he had fatally fallen back into sin. Now, the other option, on the other hand, is there are people who believe in what's called the security of the believer. That once God saves you, that God by his sovereign power can keep you saved, even when you stumble and when you fall. Because we all do. That God ultimately is the one who saves, and that the power of God is what keeps you saved. This is the classical position of the early church. And it's the classical position of the church during and after the Reformation. In fact, this has been the position of the church at large in the evangelical world and Protestant world for around the world for, over, for almost 500 years. This is, this is a position typically of Baptists, that God has the power to save someone and keep them saved. And, and, and this is from the Reformed theological pr- perspective known as the perseverance of saints. You see... In Reformed theology, the foundation and the center of salvation is not man and his free will. It is God and his sovereignty. That Salvation is the work of God. And because it's the work of God, then God has the power to keep us safe in his hands. Which, by the way, is what we see in the Bible. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has... In the Greek, present tense indicative has, in that moment, present tense, eternal life. And he does not come to judgment, but has passed from death to life. That there has been a radical change in their nature. They've gone from death to life. Jesus says that those who have faith in him have present tense, eternal life. This is is a repeat of what Jesus said in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have Present tense, indicative, in that moment, eternal life. Well, what is then eternal life? It's life that doesn't end. It's a life that goes on forever. It's eternal. But if you lose it, then it ended. Right? It's not eternal, then. It's temporal. Right? If you lost it, then you really didn't have it. It's like saying, I'm immortal, but I can still die. Right? Those things are mutually exclusive. Right? Those violate the, the law of non-contradiction. Jesus said, if you believe, you have eternal life, which means you are saved forever. And the reason why you were saved forever is because salvation is of God, and he has the power to keep you saved. Again, John, uh, Jesus says in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never Perish. Again, this phrase, never perish, is actually in the Greek a double negative. Doesn't make sense in English, but it's like they will know not never. It's emphatic. It's like saying it's impossible, right? He says that they will never, it's impossible for them to perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hands. That's why it's impossible. And then he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. Notice the double-fisted promise 
you were kept safe, you're kept safe in the hands of Christ, but you were also kept safe in, in the hands of the Father. Notice that the Father and Christ together are what keep you saved. And notice the Father is the one who gives us to the Son. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Salvation is 100% the work of God, and it is he who saves us, and it is he who keeps us saved. And so what does that mean then for, for Judas? Well, it simply means that he never had salvation. It was never his. He was never saved. God never drew him to Christ. The Father never gave him to the Son. He, had, he was never in Jesus' hands in that way. God never changed his heart. He was never born again. All the things that we say about Christians cannot be applied to him. He never really believed. Even though he professed, he never believed in a saving kind of faith. He was never saved though he seemed to be one of them. He was not. As the Apostle John says, this is one of the most enlightening scriptures on this particular subject. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, if they'd been one of us, they would have been believers, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might become, they might become plain that they are not of us. Judas may have looked apart at first, but he never was a believer. He had never was saved. Because if he had been saved, he would have never fallen away. Not to say he wouldn't sin, right? Because he would have sinned, but he wouldn't have fallen away. Because God has the power not only to save, but keep one saved. Which then leads to the question, if Judas was not saved, then why would God train him and equip him and send him out? Right? Was Jesus fooled? Was Jesus fooled by Judas's act? I mean, we've all been fooled. We trusted people that we thought were good people. And the answer to this question is simply no. Jesus was not fooled. The thing that we need to remember is that Jesus, as we say over and over again, a truth that we hold on to is Jesus is God. Right? Jesus is not just some prophet. He is not some popular rabbi. Right? He's not just some powerful man of God. Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is fully God. Right? He's the, he's the, the second member of the Trinity, Fully God came to earth and became fully man. And because of that, then Jesus is omniscient, which we've seen. He's all-knowing. He knows everything. And it's something that we've seen even in the book of Mark. If you remember, Jesus is preaching in a crowded room, and they bring this paralytic man. They can't get to him. right? So what do they do? They climb up on Peter's house. They tear the roof off the house. They lower this man down to Jesus so Jesus can heal him. Right? And then when they do, what does Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. And in that moment, it says that the scribes thought to themselves. They had thoughts internally. They didn't verbalize these thoughts that, hey, why is he saying that? That's blasphemy. He can't. Who can forgive but, but God himself? And then it said that Jesus right, immediately perceived in his spirit what they were thinking. Jesus knew everything, even the thoughts of men. This is illustrated and even made even more clear again in the book of John, chapter 2. It says, now that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because, look at this, he knew all people. And indeed, no one, he needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus, God in the flesh, the author of life itself, the one who created all things, was not fooled because he knows all things, which means then, by implication, Jesus knowingly chose Judas to be one of the original apostles. Jesus chose him. He selected him, which, if you remember, in Mark chapter 3, right, how he chose his disciples, it says, and he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they may be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed them, Simon, to whom 
He gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the, the brother of James, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus purposely chose him. And what we might not realize is that this wasn't like a willy-nilly choice. Because what we find out in, in Luke um, is that Jesus went up on that mountain the night before to pray about it. It says in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, In these days he went up to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Jesus, after a night of close personal fellowship and prayer with the Father, prayed and chose his apostles. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he wanted, which then leads to the third question. Was God surprised? Was God surprised by how things turned out? And this is an important question because there is a view, a growing view in American Christianity where, where God is not really completely sovereign in the, in, in the reform sense of the word. That he does things, right? But he doesn't always know how things are going to turn out. He's constantly having to exercise supernatural power to put people back on track because they're always doing stuff that he's not expecting for them to do. That he's always having to constantly make adjustment to his, to his plans. It's the idea that mankind has within his ability to thwart the will of God. Is, is that what's happened here? He gave Judas a choice, and then now somehow he does something unexpected. Right? That he chose not to. No. God was not surprised. This did not catch him off guard. This did not surprise him. God, God was not like, wait a minute, I didn't see that coming. Right? This was not an unexpected development. He didn't anticipate. God the Father and, and Christ the Son knew that Judas would betray Jesus. They knew it. Think about it. Jesus loved him anyway. They knew it. And I want you to hold on to your hats here because the reason why they knew it is because God the Father ordained it to happen. He ordained it. This was part of the plan from the very beginning. The plan and the purpose that God had laid out in eternity past. This, it is part of God's plan for Jesus to call Judas, to train him, to send him out and for then Judas to betray him. Acts chapter 1. Peter references this. Verse 16, he says, Brothers, the scripture has been fulfilled. The scripture from before has been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. This was foreordained. Psalms 41, nearly a thousand years before Jesus walked on the face of the earth. It says, even cl my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus references this scripture in John chapter 13. After washing his disciples' feet and demonstrating his incredible love for them, Judas included, you, you realize it, that he washed Judas' feet that <coughs> night too. Right? He, he washed his feet and then it says, but this scripture was fulfilled, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And then it says, I say these things, right? After, after saying these things, it says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of who he spoke, because they didn't know, because it wasn't apparent by his actions. The rest of the disciples had no clue. And one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, which is how John refers to himself affectionately, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so this, that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he whom I, have, I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after that, he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. By the way, if you belong to Christ, Satan can't enter you because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, what are you, what you are going to do, do quickly. Brothers and sisters, this was not plan B. 
This was the plan all along. God ordained for all this to happen. God ordained for Christ to call him, to equip him, to send him out, for Judas to preach the gospel, for him to heal people and cast out demons and follow Jesus for three and a half years and then Judas to betray him. God ordained for this to happen. And it's all happened by God's plan to which some people who struggle with the sovereignty of God will say, that's not fair. That's not fair. It's just not. Judas didn't even have a chance. God didn't even give him a chance. What if Judas really did want to follow Jesus? What if, what if, what if Jesus really wanted to believe God, but God wouldn't let him because of his plan? That's not fair. Christians, this is one of those places where if you could hear me, please hear me. God didn't make Judas do anything that Judas didn't already want to do. That is the bottom line truth. Understand that God didn't make Judas greedy against his will. It was already in him. It was his nature to be greedy. It was his nature to be deceitful. It was his nature to be self-interested because that is what we're talking about. Judas didn't follow Jesus because he thought that Jesus was somehow God in the flesh and he wanted to live a holy and righteous life. He followed Jesus because he thought Jesus was going to be the next reigning king in Israel. And as such, he would drive out the Roman Empire and that he would ascend back to the throne and then Israel would begin a, become another world superpower once again. And Judas, because of his relationship with Christ, would then be a VIP and would be very powerful and wealthy in the new kingdom. That is what he thought. That is what he wanted. God didn't make Judas do anything that he didn't want to do. No more than God makes you sin the way that you do. Remember, James says, don't. You blame your sin on God. And one day it became very apparent to Judas that his vision of the future and Jesus' vision of the future just were not in alignment anymore. And I'll tell you when that came. That came when, if you remember that time when they went to Bethany to Lazarus and Mary and uh, Martha's house just before Jesus was, was crucified and his disciples were with them and Mary, the sister of Lazarus, takes this container of expensive aromatic ointment out and she uses it on Jesus. A whole pound of the stuff. And this stuff is so expensive that, that it takes an, an entire year's wages to pay for. And, and, and if you could just stop, pause long enough to think about the implications of that, okay? A lotion that costs so much that takes an entire year of what you make to to earn, okay? And I say that, husbands, your wife's, isn't, your wife's makeup's not that expensive by comparison, okay? All right. Just one container of this, this ointment. She took this ointment that cost a year's wages and she applied it to Jesus as a sacrifice. And as the, the aroma of the perfume went throughout the room, Judas asked the question, why wasn't this ointment sold, All right? And given to the poor, as if that was what his motives are. But the Bible tells us that he, right, that he didn't care about the poor, but he was a thief, and having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas was greedy and power-hungry. That's why he followed Jesus. That's why he became apparent that Jesus and him were not going the same direction, and he made up his mind to betray him. In fact, just after this event, the Bible tells us that Judas immediately went out and he sought the Sanhedrin to find out how much money they would give him to betray Jesus. It's the very next event. Judas was corrupt and greedy and selfish, so God did not make him do anything he didn't already want to do. God didn't make him betray Christ against his own will. Judas did that by his own free will, which was inclined to do what it was, which would naturally do, which is to seek sin. That's the way we typically tend to use our own free will. We choose sin. No one makes us, no one makes you sin, right? We choose it because we love it. It's our nature, right? Don't tell me when, when, when that person cuts you off, there's something in you that feels pretty good when that hand goes up really, really fast, right? Okay. I mean, th there's a reason why in America the Game of Thrones is one of the number one all right, because people love to see that stuff. And I'm not talking about the battle scenes. Okay? 
We choose to sin because we love it, and it's the same with Judas. God did not force him to do anything. He simply used Judas' own nature and his own choices to achieve his plan. God had ordained for this to happen. God ordained his selection, his training, his sending, and even his betrayal. All of this was planned to bring salvation to mankind and glory to his name. Judas was not saved. Jesus was not fooled, and God was not surprised. Which then leads to several implications and lessons I think that we can learn from this. Number one, the first one is the fact that not everyone who professes Christ is saved. Not everyone who goes to church is saved. Not everyone who is in ministry is saved. Not everyone who prays a prayer and comes forward at an altar call is saved. And I realize this is something that we say that bothers a lot of people here in America. In other countries, it didn't bother them so much. But here in our country, man, it bothers us to hear these words. Because there's something in us that, that wants salvation to somehow be about getting our ticket punched. If you'll just pray this prayer, if you'll just say these words, if you will get all emotional and cry and walk down the aisle and publicly profess you, that you believe in Jesus, then you will be saved and secure. No, no questions asked, no matter what happens and no matter what changes in your life or not. You get that ticket punched and you are heaven bound. Hallelujah. But hear me, church, and I'm going to say this as lovingly as I possibly can. That ain't the gospel. It ain't. That ain't the gospel. It's not the gospel. Judas was, was one of the apostles. He followed Jesus everywhere he went, and he preached the gospel, and he, he, did every, he did miracles and professed his faith in Christ, and he believed that he was a follower, but he was unregenerate. He was unsaved. Why, then, in the world would we tell someone who made a profession of faith at youth camp when they're 16 years old, who lives like a demon, that he or she, right, is, is saved because at one point in their life that they invited Jesus in their heart and prayed some prayer? Why would we say that? What kind, of, what kind of arrogance would assume such a thing? Judas followed Jesus for three years, face to face, eyeball to eyeball, and wasn't a believer. But Bob over there, who has been divorced four times, gets drunk every single weekend, looks at porn three times a week. But he's definitely saved because, you know, some more Sunday morning 20 years ago, he heard a preacher give an invitation, and he tearfully came forward and prayed the sinner's prayer, and now he's headed to heaven. Really? Are you kidding me? The most dangerous theology that, that, that faces the church today in America is not the LDS view of God or the watchtower's view of God, because both of those are obviously in error. You read the Bible, it's in error. The most dangerous theology facing the church today is the man-centered view of salvation known as easy believism or ticket-punching theology. You get your ticket punched because you pray this prayer and nothing else matters. You're good. You're saved, no questions asked. I heard a preacher, a preacher say that there are people who are saved and there's Christians who are also saved. Okay, well, you got my attention. Okay, what, what are you saying? He says, yeah, there are people who saved. They, they went to church one time, got saved, but then they don't live for the Lord. They don't go to church. Nothing is in their life's changed. They still live carnal lives. There's nothing. Like, you can't even tell that they believe in Jesus, Right? But they're definitely saved. But then you have Christians who are those people who decide that they just really want to live for God. As if those are, both of them are, are, are heaven bound. Brothers and sisters, that's a theology that's going to send people to hell. Now, don't get me wrong, please, because I get in trouble. I say stuff, and then people say, well, so you said, hear me, please, okay? All right. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray, right, when we repent and believe the gospel. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying praying is not helpful. Okay? Praying to ask God to forgive you, that's good. Okay? Please, praying that God would save you. Lord, save me. Change me. Those are good, right? Praying right, that, and declaring to God, Lord, I repent. I repent of my sin. I believe the gospel. That's good. But that prayer, right? prayer itself, praying some words, 
That is not the instrument that saves you. I also think public professions of faith are good. In fact, I think it's pretty much mandatory. Like, that's what baptism is, by the way, is a public profession of your faith. You're publicly declaring, I'm with Jesus. I'm a part of this church body that came about in a time when people would die for that profession of faith. We should stand up and be counted as Christians. It should, it should show in our lives. So I'm all for the public profession of faith. Right? You should declare publicly your love for Christ. Those are good things. You should declare, I'm repenting of my sins. You should confess your sins. Your public profession of faith is good, but it doesn't save you. That is not the mechanism of salvation. The only way that you, that will, the only thing that will save you is for God to change your heart and for you to receive the truth of the gospel and do what Christ says to do, which is to repent and believe the gospel. That you come to faith in Christ. You come to Christ believing in him, depending upon him, trusting in him alone, with empty hands, with nothing to bring to the relationship, but him alone, trusting in him, right? Which then will be followed, right? If that happens and you encounter Jesus Christ that way and repent and believe the gospel, what will happen is naturally that we'll be followed by a transformed life. Not a perfect life, but a transformed life of continual repentance in faith. As Paul Washer says, the way that you know that you actually repented and believed and were saved the way that you said that you were is that you will continue in a life where you continue to repent and you continue to believe. Because God, if you belong to him, if you sin, he will not let you stay off the path very long. He will come after you, whether by compassion or through chastisement. God will bring you back if you are his. But the problem is, is ticket-punching theology tells people that at some point in your life, if you just prayed some prayer, or you confessed Jesus as your Savior, you invited Jesus in your heart, then you were saved no matter what else happens in your life, whether you repent or you don't. And that's a teaching that inoculates people against the gospel. It's like the gospel vaccination. Because in America, you will go and you will talk to somebody and you will explain to them the truth of the gospel, and they'll go, wait a minute, I know that done that. Right? I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I'm already saved. You have to tell me about that. Really? How do you know? Well, because one time I went to church and I was told to, to pray this prayer if I didn't want to go to hell. And I didn't want to go to hell, so I prayed the prayer, so I'm saved. We see it all the time. If you walk out of here today and take a poll of everyone in this community, and you all know how I feel about the people in this community. I love the people in this community. Right? People of different faiths, people that are believers and unbelievers, right? But if you walk out of here and you pull this entire community and ask them if they're a Christian, almost all of them will identify as Christian. Well, if that were so, brothers and sisters, this town wouldn't look like it does. Amen. There would be no addiction problem in Boron anymore. If that were so, right, our community would not be, wouldn't look like a bombed out third world country in some places. If that were so, the divorce rate would be eradicated in our town and people would take notice and say, what's going on there? If that were so, teenagers in the junior high and high school wouldn't be getting drunk and, and getting high. The vast majority of our community, if they were truly Christ followers, we'd have to build new churches and have four services every weekend because there wouldn't be enough room for everybody to come and worship. And you certainly wouldn't see hungry kids and kids who need clothes and shoes and there wouldn't be the kind of violence that we see happening here in our community. Saying some words does not make you a believer. Not very long ago, in fact, a couple weeks ago, a man pulled up here in, a par in the parking lot after youth group, just right out there. And he pulls right in, and he gets, he gets out, and he goes to the back steps, and he puts his leg up on the back steps, and he kneels down, and it looks like he's praying. That's going to get my interest, right? I'm here to help, right? So I walk up to him, and, and he's getting back in his truck, and I catch him. I say, hey, can I help you? And he's like, and he smells like alcohol. You can tell he's already, already been drinking quite a bit. And uh, his speech is slurring. He says, yeah, yeah, I actually just need to talk to you. I said, okay, great, I'm here. He goes, I, I, I've been kind of a bad boy. Okay, never heard that before, but that's cool. Right? And I just, you know, I just, I just needed just, just to be a reminder that Jesus loves me. I said, okay, that's why I came here. And, and I said, well, well, well tell me. You know, do you know the, the gospel? I mean, because I'd be happy to share that with you. Oh, I know all about that. I'm like, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I was personally led to, to salvation by Pastor Chuck Smith. 
Somebody, by the way, I have high esteem for, you know, someone who's really influenced my life. I was like, okay. And I was baptized in the ocean by Chuck Smith. And I know, I know that I'm saved. Right? I just need to get back on the, on the right track. But I know for sure I'm saved. Now, in the conversation that, that followed, I found out that during the time he's been saved, he's been married and divorced four times. Okay? And, and, and he spends most of his spare time now because he's on the road working with different crews, and he spends most of his time drinking and partying and getting drunk, right? And uh, in fact, there, he had a beer with him um, while he's talking to me. And, uh, and then he made a point to say multiple times how much he really loves the women, okay? And, and I told him, I said, I said, I don't think you just need to come here and just, you know, just pray. I think you need to repent and believe the gospel. He said, no, I know that God loves me. I said, how do you know that? Well, I just feel in my heart. I said, how do you know you can trust your heart? Well, because it's in my heart. I said, have you read the Bible? He goes, well, kind of. I said, have you read the part about where it says that you can't trust your heart, that the heart is deceitful, right, and wicked? Who can know it? And that shook him up a little bit. And then I said, you need to repent of your sins and turn to Christ, and you cannot love your sin more than you love God. Well, I don't. I said, that means you have to turn away from them. That includes your lust for women. Well, I can't do that, (laughs) because... I love the women so much. This man believes that he's saved. Now, I don't know what the condition of his heart is, but all I can do is warn him because it seems to me that maybe he doesn't, right? But but he thinks because he made a profession of faith and was baptized by a big-name preacher in Christianity, again, somebody I have high esteem for who I believe has done great things for the kingdom of God, right? But he thinks because he's the one that baptized him that he somehow you know, is, is golden. And he didn't come to church to repent. He came to basically have someone assuage his feelings and, and to assure him, well, you made that profession of faith one day, so you're good, so he can go back out and do what he was already doing, living an unchanged life. This ticket-punching theology and easy believism theology is a dangerous man-centered theology. There are people who believe that they're true followers of Christ just like Judas did. And they're going to betray God, and they're going to betray Christ and for their sin, thinking that they have their ticket punched. But it's not true. Jesus' words, if, as a preacher, if these words don't haunt you in your sleep, then nothing will. Right? Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. He's emphatic by repeating it, by making it say that they believe that they're really believers. Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast up demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And didn't I pray that prayer? And didn't I invite you into my heart? And so on and so on. And then I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not everyone who makes a profession of faith is saved. And I get a lot of pushback on this particular thing about, and, and the reason why I get pushback is not because of what the Bible says, but because of people's emotions, because of what we feel. Because many of us have kids, and, and, and they make professions of faith when they're young, and when they grow up, it's apparent that they're not walking with God at all, right? But we want to hold on and believe that they're saved because they had, you know, because at some time in their life, right? That when they were 12 years old, they invited Jesus in their heart and made a profession of faith at VBS and, and prayed to receive Christ in the youth group. And please understand, like, I understand how that is. I had that happen in my own life with even some of my own kids. And I also understand, right, that lots of people get saved when they're young. In fact, the vast majority of people who come to faith in America do so before they're 18 years old. That is why children's ministry and youth ministry is so important. And I believe that many people can, can know Christ and come to know Christ through VBS and youth camp, and those things are worthwhile, and we should do them. That's why we're going to go through all the trouble <laughs> to do VBS. I mean, if there's a stressful time in the Burkhead household, guess what time of year it is? It's VBS season, right? We're going to do this because it's worth it. We believe it's worth it. And we're going to take our youth group, guess what, to youth camp. So don't take this as a condemnation of those things. But in that, we cannot allow our emotions to get in the way of the truth. That There are lots of people who make a profession of faith, whether they're young or whether they're old, who simply are not saved because they really didn't understand the gospel or believe the gospel. This is a story that Judas makes clear that a profession alone isn't what makes it real. 
But the second thing that we can learn, and I'm going to try to get through these quickly because heaven forbid I go long two weeks in a row. The second thing that we can learn is that emotion is not the foundation of truth. And again, we've already talked about this and touched on this, but I want to reinforce this. Our emotions are not what determines what is true. From our kids making professions of faith to the culture's view on what love is and what marriage is. There are young adults who have gone to this church that I during my time as a pastor, who, who went to the youth group that I pastored that right now are grown up and they're married, you know, thankfully to, to the opposite sex. They are married in, in regular relationships, but they're confused about the issues of LGBT culture. And, they, and the reason why I know that is because I've talked to them and I've also seen some of their Facebook and, and social media posts. They struggle with what the church has taught for 2,000 years about these issues because culture is putting emotional pressure on them. And they are now judging the truth based on not what the word says, but how they feel. But emotion, brothers and sisters, please hear me, is not the foundation of what is true, even if we don't like the truth. Our feelings and emotions must always submit to the word of God and not the other way around. Even when the word of God says some things that we don't like. And, and believe me, there have been times I've wrestled with the word in tears like, Lord, I don't want to even say that. Now, the next, just like emotions, is experience is not the foundation of truth either. Because there are people who, especially in this culture, are seeking to live Christian lives based on experience rather than scripture and doctrine and, and you know, the doctrines of the church. The fact of the matter is, is Christianity is a mystical kind of relationship with God. It's a mystical faith in the sense that you can experience God in a very real, tangible way. But your experience is not the foundation of the truth. Judas experienced healing people. Casting out demons and being part of that movement probably led him to believe that he was somebody special. Right? And that he was a follower of Christ. And even, even those things probably could have led him to believe that he was on the right side of things when he was dead wrong. In our popular culture, people today will, are looking for experiences to give their faith and theology direction. People are looking for miracles and circumstances and emotional highs to give them insight into the relationship with God and his will for their lives rather than what the word of God actually has to say in sound biblical doctrine. I can't tell you how many people come up to me all the time and will say, Sherman, God spoke to me. God said to me. God spoke to me. God said to me. Who have never, ever read the word of God. Now, can God speak to his people? Without question, he's God. He what he wants to do, right? But what I do know for a fact is that God speaks to his people 99.999999% of the time here. Why would he want to like single you out to tell something to you when he already told you is you're just too stubborn to listen, right? Our culture's looking for that. The fourth thing is not every gifted leader speaks for God. Not every gifted leader speaks for God. Judas was a gifted man, but that man fell away. And I mention this because we live in a culture of celebrity pastors. Man, you let the right celebrity pastor say something, that is the truth, no matter what this says. And people become sold out for their, for their messages, right? And, and I've heard people say, gosh, he's just so anointed, or she is so anointed. And I have, I've never heard anybody speak that way. And, I've, and you know what, when I hear him talk, I just, I just feel this connection. Then you have the miracle workers, the faith healers, forgetting the fact that Judas himself, Judas himself healed people. Judas himself cast out demons. But what we need to realize is that, 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 that talented and gifted people are not the ones that we actually follow. We follow Christ. And the way that we follow him is to read and study and listen to and obey and submit to the revealed word of God. The word of God is the only objective standard for truth that we have, regardless of what any pastor says. And if anyone preaches anything that does not line up with the word of God, then he or she is not giving you a message that is from God, no matter how talented or gifted or compelling they may be. One of the most absolute gifted communicators in our time is, is a pastor of a megachurch. And I'm just telling you, like when I, I've, heard this, I've heard many of his sermons, I've read a couple of his books, and he's one of the best communicators clear, concise, can draw you in. I wanted to be so much like this guy, but he's now 
right now saying things like, the Bible is just a collection of ancient documents. The Bible doesn't say anything. It's just a collection of ancient documents. And we need to unhitch our theology from the Old Testament if we're going to be effective Christians in the modern age. That's what he's saying now, right? I can tell you that message is not from God. That is not from God. I don't care how awesome he is and how inspired of a speaker he may be. The Bible is our authoritative standard of truth. Fifth, this teaches us that God can, and he does use evil people and evil circumstances for his purpose. God used Judas to bring about the death of Christ on the cross, probably the most evil thing that could have ever befalled the entire human race, right? But it brought salvation to mankind, which is the greatest possible good. God used Judas's greed, his selfishness, his pride to bring about the arrest and crucifixion of Christ and so that Christ's death would atone for the sins of those who believe in him. God can and does use evil people and evil circumstances to accomplish his purposes. That's the theme we see throughout the Bible. Just think about Joseph. Sold into slavery by his brothers, sent to prison because he was wrongfully accused, becomes the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, saves his family and really the entire known world. And what does he say to his brothers? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God can and does use evil people and evil circumstances to achieve his plan for good. Sixth, God and only God can change hearts. Right? You have 12 men who spend three and a half years with Christ, who are called by Christ, who are trained by Christ, who are equipped by Christ sent by Christ, 12 men who watched him perform astounding miracles. They saw him calm the storm, walk on water, feed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread and some fish, 12 men who watched Jesus preach in synagogues, stand up to the Pharisees and the scribes, 12 men who ate meals with him, 12 men who slept next to him and worshiped with him and prayed with him, 12 men who walked with him everywhere he went, and all of them, every single one of them, abandoned him in their own way. We forget that part. Twelve men who walked away. Right? Judas betrayed him, but they all abandoned Christ when he was arrested in their own way. In fact, Peter denied him three times. Cussing. I never knew. Blah, 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 blah. Right? They were all guilty. So all twelve abandoned Christ in one way or another, but eleven were saved and one was lost. What is the difference? Is it intelligence? No. They're all probably about the same intelligent level. Right? Was it their background? They're all Jews from the same community, right? Was it the fact that the, the other 11 were you know, better people? The Bible says no one is good. No, not one. They were all sinners just like Judas. In fact, they were selfish just like him too. Remember the story of James and John? They send their mama in to talk to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, can, can my boys be like have the special favor and, and sit at your right hand in the kingdom? Because they thought, just like Judas did, What? that Jesus was going to be the king and that he was going to set up this world superpower and they were going to be VIPs in the new regime. Right? What about Peter? Boastful and arrogant. I mean, Jesus even told that dude, get behind me, Satan. And every one of them demonstrated on multiple occasions just how weak and, and frail and pathetic their faith in Christ was. They were all depraved sinners just like he was. So what's the difference between the 11 and Judas? They all heard the message. They all heard the gospel. They had all had the same opportunities. What then is the difference? The difference is that God, by the counsel of his own will, changed 11 hearts and not one. God left Judas unregenerate for the purpose of his plan and his good pleasure and for our good. That's the difference. These other apostles were not better than Judas. They were not more deserving. Nobody's deserving. You understand that, right? Like, if, if there's one thing that you can walk out of here today with just knowing, no one's deserving. Nobody. Like, what I deserve is for God to have killed me in my sleep last night for the things I did and thought yesterday, right? So they weren't more deserving. They were not, they were just as condemned, just as sinful, but God, according to the counsel of his own will, changed Peter's heart and James's heart and the others, but not Judas. Only God can change hearts. Number seven, I'm going to hurry, I'm going to speed up here now. Number seven is that there is no plan B. It's all plan A. Judas' natural rebellion to betray Christ was not an afterthought, right? 
in order to achieve and save some part of the plan. It was always part of the plan. Jesus going to the cross to save mankind is not plan B. It was plan A from eternity past. God's divine plan and purpose was created in eternity past. God willingly sent his son. Jesus willingly went. A plan that he designed by the counsel of his own will. A plan for his good pleasure and ultimately for our good. There is no plan B in redemption history. Only plan A. And finally... The detail that answers all the questions of of why would God use Judas in a way that he did and why would God allow bad things to happen and how can God save people who are in open rebellion to him? The question that, 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 the answer that answers all the questions is the truth that God is sovereign. That's the answer that makes sense. The only answer that can anchor your hope that God will faithfully finish what he started in you. It's the only answer of why I can, I can have security in the fact that God will keep me saved in spite of who I am. And it's the only answer that supports the promise that God will work all things out for those who love him and call according to his purpose, whether it's good or it's bad, that God will work those things out. God is sovereign and in control, and because of that, God works things out to the counsel of his own will according to his own eternal plan. And brothers and sisters... In this life, things are just, some things are just not going to make sense to you. Some things are going to happen in your life. You're just going to go, why, God? This does not make sense to me. Why did he choose to use Judas to heal and cast out demons? You realize people, some people probably actually got saved because of Judas. You talk about God's sovereignty, right? That was somebody else's, it was Matt and Aaron's observation on that one. Right? There are things in this world that are not going to make sense to you. Right? And there are going to be times where even you're going to struggle with the very word of God. You're going to struggle with what he's saying. But take heart, brothers and sisters, because you can trust God to deliver you through the worst kinds of storm in your life. And he will save you because he is completely sovereign. Nothing surprises him. Nothing fools him. Nothing's beyond his control. And that's why you have faith in him. That's why you can depend upon him. That's why you can trust that he will do what he said. It's because he's sovereign. So now, really quickly, not to take 20 more minutes. Because, <laughs> amen. Yeah, but uh, to apply this, some applications to this particular uh, teaching is, first of all, we should always come back to do what Christ says, which is to repent and believe the gospel. And if you're someone who's not put your trust in Jesus Christ, then, then Christ, then seek him with all of your heart. Seek him. Turn to him. Throw yourself upon his mercy with nothing in your hands. Grab a hold of Christ and believe the gospel. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your arrogance. Turn away from your self-righteousness. Turn away from, from all that's holding you back and believe the gospel. Believe that he is what he claimed to be. Jesus is God in the flesh and that he can do what he promised to do, save you from your sins. Right? Believe that Jesus lived a perfect life that you couldn't live and that on the cross to pay for a penalty you couldn't pay and that he gives to you something you didn't deserve, which is his righteousness. And now you then could be adopted into the family of God because of that and that Jesus died on the cross three days later, rose again, proving that it's all true, that you can believe the gospel. And if you're a believer, that you already believe that, then you continue in that. Continue by God's grace to repent and to believe those words that Jesus say are, for, are, are present tense indicatives, meaning that we continue to do them, we continue to repent, we continue to believe by God's grace. Guess what? You're going to fall down, you're going to sin again, and you're going to repent. And you might have to repent of that same thing a thousand times, but praise the Lord, by His grace, He will help you to do that. Secondly, obey and go. We're called to be a part of the mission of Christ to save the lost. We should all do our part to go out into the world and share the hope of Christ. And then we do that when we do our part, which is to trust, and we trust God to do his part. Because our part is what? Sow the seed. And sow it again and again and again. And love the people with reckless abandon and keep loving them, even the ones that are hard to, to love, and even the ones that hate us, even our enemies. We keep loving them and keep sowing the seed. And then we pray for them. What do we pray for? That God would change their hearts. Because we can't, but God can and we never give up, ever give up, because God will save some, 
right now, and he will take them to the very end of their life before they take their last breath, and he will rescue them. It's happened, right? The thief on the cross is the example of that. We don't ever give up on people, right? But then we don't take it personal when they reject the gospel. Why? Because the world hates the gospel. It's foolish to those, those who are perishing. We don't take it personal. We keep preaching it, and then we trust to be, that God will be God because he is sovereign. And he is in control, and because of that, then we can walk victoriously in this life with our heads up, proclaiming our love for Jesus. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.